Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. If you're new or you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we're grateful to have you. We're in our series for the summer that we've titled Guard Your Heart. And we get that phrase from uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the, the, the phrase that we use to, to kind of open up this series. We're there, the writer of Proverbs, in wisdom, tells us that we are to guard our heart above all else, for from, all, from our heart flows all of life. The direction and orientation of our life, the, the decisions we make, the ups and the downs of life, all of that flows from the heart. And so we've, we've been talking about over the past several weeks how our spiritual, spiritual maturity and our emotional maturity are ultimately linked together. That as disciples of Jesus Christ who want to grow into his image and likeness, we can see even in the New Testament that all of that begins in the heart. When the Apostle Paul would tell the church in Galatia that they're to, to grow up into the fullness of, uh, of, of Jesus and to allow his spirit to bear fruit in their lives, all of those fruits of the spirit are in many ways shaped by the heart. If, if the heart is wayward, in other words, it's really hard to become gentle or kind or patient or loving or self-controlled. And so we spent the last couple of weeks just talking about that. What does that look like? Last time we were looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and how in all of life we will face various seasons, ups and downs, laughter and, and weeping. The, the, the Solomon tells us there's a, a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time for life and there's a time for death. And so how do we then situate our hearts such that we grow and flourish in, in whatever season we find ourselves in? Well, today I want to kind of go a little bit further down the road of particular seasons and talk about a very particular attribute of the heart. That, that is the idea of discouragement. And, and, and I think that um, it's fair to say that if everything under heaven is going to take place at some point in time in our lives, as Solomon said when we looked at Ecclesiastes 3, and there will be a season for all of us where we battle or deal with discouragement. And what does that look like? And how does it, how does it happen in our lives? And so to that end, I want to look at a particular episode in the life of Elijah, the prophet of God in 1 Kings chapter 19. But before we can unpack this particular chapter, I really need to set it in context. Because what has happened in the two previous chapters is really significant for understanding what's happening and what we're about to read. So back in uh, 1 Kings 17, we begin reading that, uh, that Elijah is a prophet of God at a time when, the, when Israel is led by King Ahab. And King Ahab, from what the text tells us, is quite the scoundrel. He, uh, it tells us in, in chapter 17 that King Ahab provoked the Lord or provoked Yahweh perhaps more than any other king. That he completely disregarded God and his word and his law and his ways. And Ahab took for himself um, a queen, a, a wife named Jezebel. Uh, she was the, the daughter of, of, of a foreign king who worshipped Baal. And so she brought with her all of this foreign worship into Israel. And actually, Ahab just adopted it. He was like, hey man, happy wife, happy life. Whatever she wants to worship, that's what we're going to do. And so they set up uh, temples and, and, and poles and ways of worshiping this foreign god named Baal, the god, of, god I think, of, of rain and fertility. And so this greatly displeases God, and so God appoints a, a prophet, in this case it's Elijah, to go in and confront Ahab about this. And so uh, Elijah does just that. He tells Ahab, look, it's not going to rain until God says so because you've brought foreign gods in, into God's land, into God's people. And so for three years, a famine falls upon Israel. There's no rain. No one has any resources. It's, it's a drought. Everything has gone dry because God said they're worshiping foreign gods. And in the midst of that, Elijah flees Israel because, after all, no one wants to be the messenger whenever we're about to really suffer. And so Elijah flees, and he goes down to a different region. There he finds a, 
a widow, a single mom who's raising a son. And he stumbles upon her, and, and he needs resources. He needs sustenance. But all she has, it says, is just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And Elijah says, the Lord has sent me here and kind of posts up there. And she begins to supply food for him with what little she has. And it says that the Lord performed a miracle. And the little bit of flour and the little bit of oil that she had lasted as she continued to bake cakes and to supply what Elijah needed to be sustained. Not only Elijah, but her and her son as well. And then something tragic happens. The son falls ill to the point that he dies. And so Elijah goes and cries out before the Lord on behalf of the son. And it says that the son is brought back to life. So Elijah has now been a part of prophesying that there would be a drought, and that's exactly what's happened, that it wouldn't rain. He's been a part of seeing God's sustaining grace and mercy by providing oil and flour for this widow. He's been a part of seeing resurrection happen to the widow's son, and now he goes back to Ahab for a big confrontation. And you get to 1 Kings chapter 18, and there's a showdown where Elijah says, go and get all the prophets of Baal. Bring all of the guys that do my job for your foreign false god. Bring them up to, to Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a showdown. And so he, he pitches this idea to Ahab. He says, we're going to build two altars, and your prophets are going to cry out to your God to send fire to consume their altar, and I'm going to cry out to the God of heaven, and whosoever God answers first is the one true God. And so Ahab says, sure, let's do that. So they go to Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal build their altar, and it says that from morning until noon, the prophets of Baal cried out to Baal, asking him to, to bring fire from heaven, and nothing happened. And in one of my favorite sequences in all of the Old Testament, Elijah starts talking mad trash to these prophets. He's like, maybe your God is out to lunch. Maybe your God is on vacation. Maybe your God is on the toilet. Now, you're going to read a translation that may not say it exactly like that, but go look at the Hebrew. He says, your God is in the bathroom. That's why he's not sending fire from heaven. And then Elijah says, okay, time for a showdown. He goes and pours all of this water, which remember, it's a drought, very valuable resource. He pours all the water that he can find on his particular altar, cries out from heaven, cries out to heaven, God send fire, God sends down fire, and it not only burns everything, it also laps up all the water. And then he goes and confronts Ahab. He says, look, obviously, the God of heaven is the one true God. Not only that, God's about to relieve the drought. There's going to be rain again. We're going to have resources. Now is the time. Go tear down all the, 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 the altars. The prophets of Baal are put to death at the end of this sequence. They all die. And Elijah's like, okay, now is the time. Turn back to the Lord. And, 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 and water comes, and Ahab gets word, and that's where we pick up here in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, Lord. O oh, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. 
And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces in the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Ebola Mehola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall, put Jehu to, shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. My wife and I have a goal to, uh, to hike the Grand Canyon. I, I, I was calling it a bucket list, but then I decided that's the thing that you put off maybe forever, and I'm not going to call it. It's a goal, and it's going to happen sometime in the next handful of years. I need it to happen because I need to drop a few pounds, and I think that that will encourage me to do that. But we want to we hike the Grand Canyon. We want to go from rim to rim, preferably over the course of a couple of days. And so we've been processing this, reading up on this, studying this for a while to see what all we need to do in preparation to make it happen. And one of the things that I've learned, virtually everything that I read on it says, you always want to start at the, I think it's the north rim, and come out at the south rim. And the reason for that is because the elevation changes. The, the, at, the, at the north to the south, you, you start at a, a higher elevation and you go down. So because everyone says that the hard part of hiking the Grand Canyon is not hiking across the Grand Canyon. Once you're in the canyon, you're in the canyon. And the descent is actually can be quite easy, if not a little bit treacherous. But the hard part is getting out. It's really easy to get down into the canyon. It's really hard to get out. So that's the part you got to train for. That's the thing you got to prepare for. Now, as I think about that, and I think about what Elijah's dealing with here in 1 Kings 19, specifically the heart issue of discouragement. Discouragement is something that is really easy to get into and really hard to get out of. Like descending down into the Grand Canyon. It's, it seems that you can get down there real quick, and getting out... Getting out takes some time. It takes some intentionality, in this case, for Elijah and maybe for us this morning. It takes a bit of a miracle from God himself to get us out of that state. Elijah uh, is at the high point of his ministry. I mean, think about all that we just did to set this up. He has, he has prophesied that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. He has seen God's miraculous hand supply what was needed for a widow and her son through a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. He has seen God raise the dead. He's confronted the king of Israel, 
And he's seen all the prophets of Baal brought low. He's seen God bring down fire from heaven. And then when he prophesied that it was going to rain, it did rain. And so you would think in that moment, at like the highest point of his ministry, with everything he touches seems to turn to gold. I mean, he is good. And there he gets word secondhand from what is sort of a powerless person in a sense, Queen Jezebel saying, I'm going to kill you. And just like that, he gets scared to death, he tucks tail, and he runs. And not only does he run away, he leaves his servant behind. He goes before the Lord and says, I'm ready to die. I mean, think about how quick that happened from the, the pinnacle of, of, of vocational success to the depths of despair, just like that. And so what I want to show you this morning from this, the, this sequence that plays out in the life of Elijah is what I would call both the, the, the pathway that we walk that gets us to dispoint, dis, dis, discouragement and then the way that we get out of discouragement, the, the pattern or the pathway out of it. So, so how do we wind up? What's the pattern that tends to happen in our hearts that leads us to a place of abject discouragement, to the place where we're despairing even? And then how, do we, how does God want us to walk out of that? What's the pathway? out of discouragement for us this morning. Now, I think we'll see this. I have a little bit of a graphic, I think, that illustrates for you this morning what it looks like, how the pathway to, to discouragement tends to happen. But if we'll see it when we look at Elijah's life in just a second, the pathway to discouragement always begins with disappointment. There's some measure of, of disappointment that sets into motion a particular direction of the heart that will ultimately go through discouragement. And if it's not kept in check, will end in despair. This is a very predictable pattern, even for Elijah. He has a major setback, a major disappointment. At this point, he's thinking, okay, I've, I prophesied that it wasn't going to rain. It didn't rain. I, I've, I, I've see, had a showdown with the, the major prophets of this foreign God, and, and the Lord proved himself to be faithful, true, good, and right. And then I confronted the king and called down rain, and it rained. So Revival's about to happen, right? Israel's about to turn back to God. Everyone's going to go back and say, no, this whole bell thing was a hoax and a sham. Tear down these altars. Go back to the covenant. Repent. We're going to turn back to the Lord. But that doesn't happen. And so he's utterly disappointed to hear that Jezebel, whom it turns out may actually be the one in charge, tells Ahab, I don't care if he killed the prophets. I'm going to kill him. And then that disappointment left to be nursed in the heart and soul of Elijah, ultimately emerges to a state of discouragement. And he gets so discouraged that he's even despairing. Lord, kill me. Take me out. This is, in fact, the pattern of discouragement. Disappointment is the soil where discouragement grows. When we have disappointments in our hearts, disappointments in our lives that we haven't addressed, that we haven't named, that we haven't processed, that we haven't done like the Psalms teach us to do, brought those disappointments before the Lord and asked him to meet us in those, even confessing the ways that we're disappointed, maybe even with God himself. When those things are left unchecked, when they're left unnamed, when they're left unprocessed, and they begin to take root in our hearts, then we're on the pathway to discouragement. Elijah's a human being. He thought that the end of the drought and the death of these false prophets would lead to repentance and revival amongst God's people, but that doesn't happen. Instead, his very life is threatened. And not only that, he's like, okay, I confronted Ahab, but it turns out Jezebel's the one pulling the strings. 
Maybe I am powerless after all. Maybe I don't have what it takes to do this job. Maybe I am left on my own. Maybe God has abandoned and forsaken me. And what we see with with Elijah in this moment, when he's on the pathway towards discouragement, he can't reflect on the past. He can't look back, and he's not going back over the ways that God was faithful to him. And he can't see into the future how God's going to deliver him. He's stuck in the present. And when we get stuck in the present like that, when we can't go back or go forward, and we're left to just sort of wallow in our discouragement, despair begins to set in. When we can't see eternal truths or eternal promises that God has made and how they could ever come true to us, then we begin to walk the path of discouragement. In his fantastic commentary, New Morning Mercies, Paul Tripp talks about this in one sequence where he just says that part of the problem with being God's people is that we're, we have amnesia when it comes to the gospel. We forget And we can't remember that God has made these promises to us, that he's with us, that he won't forsake us. And when we lose sight of that, we get stuck in the present. And when we get stuck in the present, our expectations go off the rails. And when our expectations go off the rails, we are setting ourselves up for massive disappointments and ultimately the pathway to discouragement. This is how Tripp writes. He says, when we ask the present to give us what only eternity can give, we end up driven, frustrated, discouraged, and ultimately hopeless. This leaves us with unrealistic expectations, naivete towards temptation, and regular disappointment. It leads us to ask far too much from the people around us and to expect more than we should from the situations and locations in our lives. It makes us search over and over again for what we will not find and spend endless hours wondering why we haven't found it. It even results in some of us begging to doubt the goodness of God, beginning to doubt the goodness of God. Now, I've talked about this before. When we have these these massive expectations for the people around us, everyone's letting us down, or our our circumstances. I thought I would have escalated the ladder in my vocation more by now. I thought I would be farther along. I I thought I would have accrued more wealth. I thought my marriage would be better than it would be. I, I thought my kids would turn out differently. When we have those sort of expectations, and then we're confronted with reality, that space in between expectations and reality is called disappointment. That space where I thought it was going to look like this, but it turns out it looks like this. And that gap, the, the higher the, our expectations go and the, the, the harder reality hits. And my, my honest assessment of what we saw last time in Ecclesiastes 3, reality is going to hit hard for all of us. For everything under heaven, there is a season. And that space in between is what we call our disappointments. And those disappointments left unaddressed. Left unprocessed, not brought before the Lord in prayer and confession and even repentance. And forgive me for the ways that I've placed holy expectations that could only be befitting of the one true creator of the cosmos. And I've put them on other people. I've asked my wife or my husband to be like the Messiah. I've asked my kids to be God unto me. I've asked my job to deliver me and be my savior. Forgive me for all those ways. When we haven't done that, then we just sit in all those disappointments. And then ultimately will metastasize and then lead to discouragement. And discouragement on this pathway will end in despair because it begins to separate us from reality. That's what happens here with Elijah. Discouragement leads him to isolation and to loneliness. Go back and look at how the the author tells us what happens here. It says that whenever, whenever this one word from this one woman reaches Elijah's ears, hey, Jezebel, she wasn't impressed that you killed all the prophets. Not only that, she says she's going to take you out. Look what happens. It says, it says in verse 4, he was afraid, and he arose and, and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And here it is. And he left his servant there. 
He goes deeper and farther away from where he's supposed to go. He doesn't even go in the direction he's supposed to go. He goes to Judah. He goes to the foreign occupied land. And when he gets there, he leaves his servant behind. He's like, I just need to be alone. I need my alone time. I've got to think about this. I've got to process this. But that discouragement is leading him into isolation and ultimately into loneliness. And when we get discouraged, we do the same thing, right? No one really understands me. No one gets me. No one's really pressed in on the stuff that's bothering me. No one's really asking the questions about what's going on in my heart and life. And we go further and further and further down that road until we're not just discouraged, we're despairing. Because discouragement causes us to lose perspective. If you look back at verse 10, when the Lord asks Elijah what he's doing here. By the way, whenever God asks a question, he's not asking for information. This is for Elijah's benefit, not God's. So Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah then tells God the lie that he believes. He says, I'm the only prophet left. All the rest of them have been taken out. I'm the last one. Well, if we would have had time this morning, I would have taken you back to chapter 17, where this guy named Obadiah, who's a prophet of the Lord, goes and tells Elijah, there's 150 of us. We are hiding out right now. We're laying low for a minute. But Elijah's not the only one left. There's 150 others. Maybe if someone would just step up in courage and confront Jezebel, this would all go away. But he has convinced himself. Why? Because that's what discouragement does. When we get discouraged, we have a hard time discerning what is even true. We're like, we tell ourselves lies. I'm the only one like this. I'm the only one who feels this way. No one else gets this or understands. And so God, I believe, calls Elijah to himself so that he can hear him confess. Hey, bro, that ain't true. Not only is that not true, I'm about to flip that on on its head. I'm about to give you more people just so you know it's not true. But that ain't true at all. But when we're discouraged, it causes us to lose perspective. And then ultimately, as we've been saying, discouragement, when it's left unchecked, will end in despair. Elijah cries out, God, take my life. Moses did the same. Anyone in a position of leadership who's dealt with people and knows how frustrating that can be. Moses basically says to God in Exodus, after the people cry out once again, Moses, God's trying to punish us. Moses, all of the, the food that we had back in Egypt was free. Moses is like, you idiots. We were slaves. God, if you want me to keep leading these people, kill me now. That's essentially what he prays. Just take me out. Discouragement leading to despair. Have you been there this morning? Are you there this morning? Where are you? Just as God says to Elijah, Elijah, where are you? Where are you right now? When in your heart, if we're supposed to guard it, for from it flows all of life, We've got to see if this pattern's in place in our lives. Do you have disappointments that you've been unwilling to confess or own up to? Are you disappointed with everyone around you? Basically scapegoating everyone you can bump up against saying, you know, if you would have been this for me, then I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in. Perhaps this morning you you haven't thought about the ways that you're discouraged. Perhaps this morning you haven't thought that despair's right around the corner if you're not looking out for it. And by the way, despair doesn't necessarily have to look like depression. It doesn't necessarily have to look like what? What Elijah says here, oftentimes it does, but sometimes despair just looks like apathy. I just don't care anymore because caring hurts. Because when I care, it brings pain because I don't get what I think I should get. My expectations go through the roof, and that disappointment begins to set in. It leads me to discouragement. Or maybe it looks like cynicism. You know, the person who's chronically in critical mode where you're always looking for the the dark cloud and ignoring every silver lining, that's, that's a state of despair. It's saying, I see through everything. But like C.S. Lewis once told us, if you see through everything, you're actually blind. You're not seeing anything. Or maybe it just looks like smoldering anger. 
the, the, the low-lying level of frustration that only happens to those who wish that they were like God and could control all things. And when it doesn't happen the way you wanted it to happen, you just get mad about it. Where are you this morning? Maybe like Elijah, the Lord has summoned you to himself even this morning to say, okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about your disappointments. Let's confess those things. Let's, let's reflect on some of the ways that you've been discouraged and some of the ways that you've ignored that or denied that. Some of the ways that you try to numb out with that, whether it's through some form of addiction or just, you know, zoning out on the television set for endless hours. Where are you this morning? The pattern of discouragement is quite predictable, not just for Elijah, but for us as well. Whenever we set on this course, when our disappointments are left unnamed, when we let discouragement sink into our souls, and we're ultimately going to wind up in despair, but we don't have to stay there. That's what we're taught here is that there's a pathway out of discouragement. The Lord shows, he, he gives Elijah a hope for the future, and he does so in a really spectacular way. Go back and look. Once Elijah goes down to Mount Horeb, to, he goes back to Mount Sinai. He goes back to where God cut a covenant with his people, back where God pronounced his law and gave promises and constituted a people for himself. Elijah's taken back there. But even before that, look at what happens. When Elijah's wandered away from his servant, he's alone. He cries out, God, kill me now. Look at what happens. It says that in verse 4, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on, the hot, on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. How does Elijah begin to get out of discouragement? God gives him rest. Because oftentimes discouragement may just be the result of being exhausted. We live in an age that, that has taught us that your identity is your productivity, that what you produce is who you are. And so if you're ever not busy, then that says something about your, your character or who you are as a human being made in the image of God. And so we are chronically unable to rest most often. We're a people who don't know how to slow down, who don't know how to take a break. Not only that, we definitely don't know how to Sabbath how to stop and let God be God and to observe all that he has created like God himself did in the garden and say, behold, it is very good. How to be reflective, how to, how to worship. See, sometimes what you need in the times when you're most discouraged is a nap. This is biblical, y'all. I'm not making this up. Elijah's saying, God, I want to die. And God's like, just take a nap, you big baby. Like, <laughs> you're going to feel a lot better after a little bit of shut eye and a good meal. Why? Because you're made a human being. You're made with limitations. We'll explore that in the weeks to come. Most of the discouragement that we face is because we deny, we suppress, we work against the fact that we have limitations, that we're not omniscient, we're not all-knowing, we're, we're, we're not all-powerful, we're not God. And so one of the ways that we get out of discouragement is that we learn to find rest. To the extent that you neglect Sabbath today, to the extent that you're unwilling to hit pause, to slow down, to take a day off. It does not manifest that you're a hard worker. It does not manifest to, to, to the Lord that somehow you have a superior work ethic to all the plebes and simpletons around you. What it manifests is that you have a massive ego. It's hubris. It says God can't pull off what God needs to pull off if I take a day off. He needs me. I'm the axis upon which the world is currently spinning. My work ethic is what God needs to show up. He needs my elbow grease to make his plan happen. His sovereignty is useless apart from my effort. 
to the extent that, that we do things in our own strength, to the extent that we continue on in that pattern, we're going to not only show our hubris and our ego, ego we're going to walk the path of discouragement. Why? Because there's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough power in your body. There's not enough talent in your bones to pull it off. You were made limited. You were made frail children of dust. That's why we saw a couple weeks ago that Solomon says, what benefit is it to work then? Enjoy the fruits of your labor. Pursue joy. Find pleasure. Those are gifts from God. That is God's gift to us. Not only that, we were designed like this so that we would reach out for a Savior who wants to give us rest. Perhaps my favorite quote of Jesus in all the Gospels is in Matthew 11 when he tells his disciples, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. My favorite book written on this is called Gentle and Lowly by a guy named Dane Ortland. He quotes this and he says, In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. See, I think part of the problem with why we live in a perpetual state of discouragement is that we can't rest and we can't rest because ultimately, ultimately, we do not trust God to do what God will do. Ultimately, we don't believe that he will be who he says he will be. And we think that somehow that if we take a break, it's going to make us lazy and make God incompetent. When in fact, neither are true. Perhaps for you today, the way out of discouragement is to just take a minute and find some Sabbath rest. Secondly, I think we, we also have to go, out, go back. Elijah goes back to Mount Horeb. He goes back to Mount Sinai. Elijah goes back to the mountain of God where he is renewed and restored. And for us, that may mean the way out of discouragement is just to take some time and reflect. And go back to God's original call on your life. Go back to the time that he saved you. Go back to the time when joy flooded into your life because you thought... How could a God this good love a sinner like me? How could he redeem me, renew me, and pour hope into my life? Go back to those moments. Learn to reflect on the goodness of God. Again, look at the Psalms sometime. They're not all despair. There are a lot, there's a lot of despair there. There's a lot of honesty about disappointment. But there's also a lot of, hey, God, in my youth, you did this. The first love is rekindled. The, the, the flame and passion for what God is up to in our lives is, is thought of when we go back to where God did these things in our hearts and lives. And then not only that, Elijah listens to the word of God. He listens to God. I th think it's quite interesting that whenever Elijah is there and, and God comes to him, there's, there's fire, there's, there's a wind, a mighty wind that splits rocks in two. There's an earthquake. And each time it says, but the Lord wasn't in it. But at the end of all of that, there was this faint whisper, and that's when Elijah covers his face. In other words, God is going to speak to, to Elijah in the mundane, not the spectacular. And sometimes we're discouraged because we want fire from heaven, 
And we want the oil and the flour to never run out. And we want to see resurrection. And that's great. It does happen. God performs miracles. Sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes even when he does, it's not enough, as it is for Elijah here. He needs something beyond that. He needs to hear the still, small voice of God, reminding him and reassuring him of who he is and what he's done. He needs to get a renewed vision from God. This is what I'm up to. This is what I want to do in your life. And today, if you're discouraged, listen to the word of the Lord. Soak in it. Be saturated in it. Be reminded of God's goodness towards you. Reflect on the ways that he's done it in the past, but also listen for him to say something through his word in your life in the present. And then lastly, you got to connect to community. If you're going to get out of discouragement, it's got to be through a group of people. God's going to provide for you other people to do what? What's the antidote to discouragement? Encouragement. This is why when we studied the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, look, don't neglect meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another daily. Why? Because all, no one's over-encouraged in here. No one is suffering from having too many people remind you of the goodness of God in your life. None of us are like, oh, man, i got to go back to church where someone's going to tell me God's up to good things in my life. You're going to remind me of the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. That's not what I need. What I need is someone to yell at me, to shout the law. No, you need encouragement. And, and, and God gives Elijah a, a community. He says, you're going to get Jehu. You're going to get Haziel. You're going to get Elisha is coming as well. God gives you a team. Not only that, God gives him a replacement. God says, I'm putting you on the bench for a while. Elijah's going to be my prophet. Elisha's going to step up. You don't just need a break. You need a new job. And I'm going to give it to you. He puts people in his life who are going to give him renewed vision. People who are going to encourage him. People who are going to fight for him. When you're discouraged, that's what you need. Who do you need to lean into? Who do you need to set up a coffee or a lunch with? Who do you need to get on the phone with today? Who do you need to send a text to and say, hey, I'm in a bad spot. And you've been a person in my life in the past perhaps who's shown me some sort of encouragement. Can you be that for me now? See, the other thing with an overworked, exhausted people that we're really bad at is asking for help. Because we don't like looking lazy or weak. And you know what that is? That's a recipe for discouragement. The people of God are trained by God to be dependent, not just on God, but on others. So my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would connect to community. Maybe that means getting in a community group here at Living Hope. Maybe that means just reaching out and asking for help. Maybe it means asking for prayer, which we're going to give you an opportunity to do in just a second. Father, I pray that today for your people, wherever we may be on this pathway, whether we're headed down into the descent of discouragement or hopefully, Lord, today you're calling us out. You want to summon us to rest. You want to summon us back to our original idea of who we are in your image and what you've created us to do and to be. So God, I pray that for those especially who are weighted down with discouragement, much like your prophet in the story that we read today, Lord, that you would give them some sense of freedom, a renewed vision for what you're up to in their lives, a new, renewed passion and desire to, to be connected to, to the community of faith and to, to see you meet them in the midst of their, their situation. Even if it sounds like despair, Lord, be near. Holy Spirit, do work that we can't manufacture by our own power or might because you love us and you're good to us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.